0: If you would, would you grab your Bible and open up to the book of Joshua. And we're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. And so Joshua is telling the story of the people of God as they enter into God's promise for them. That is the land of Canaan. And we've seen the mighty things that the Lord has already done for his people. We saw the Lord in chapter 3 and chapter 4 dry up the river's. The river of the Jordan and and Israel passed through. We saw the Lord go to work as this mighty warrior for his people in chapter 6 and gave them the city of Jericho. But last week we encountered Joshua chapter 7 and the train was derailed, it seems, when Achan and in Achan all of Israel sinned against the Lord. And here in chapter 8, we get to see the the pieces put back together, and we get to see our God and his grace. So let's give our attention to chapter 8. We're going to read the whole of the chapter. So give your attention to God's word. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. And his people, his city, and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves, lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night, and he commanded them. Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but you all, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. And you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went out to the place of ambush and lay, be- and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and camped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled into the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua, and they went and they were drawn away from the city." Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai and the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel Some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they had pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the people of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing, and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who speaks. You have spoken to us in your word and it is our joy to listen to what you have to say to us. And so, Father, we we come to your word this morning and we want to receive it. We want to obey it. We want to be changed by it and built up. And so, Father, we ask that you you would use your word this morning to work powerfully in our hearts and in our lives, that we might be a people transformed by your word. And so help us now, would you give us grace, we pray, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps the most misunderstood doctrine of the Christian life is the doctrine of repentance. It's a doctrine that we often get wrong. And one way we get repentance wrong is we misunderstand repentance in terms of its origin. We picture in our minds the doctrine of repentance and we, we picture it, it flowing out of the headwaters of the wrath and anger of God. We ask in our minds, well, where does repentance come from? Where does it come from? What, what gives birth to repentance? And the wrong answer to give is the anger or the wrath of God. Now, certainly God's anger burns against sin. We can just go back one chapter in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 7 to, to confirm this fact. Israel sinned, Achan sinned, and, and the Lord's anger burned against both Achan and all of Israel. And certainly God's anger provides all sorts of incentives to repent. We just look at chapter 7 and there's all of these incentives, namely this, I don't want to perish with Achan. I don't want to die with that man. I don't want to taste the Lord's anger. And certainly as we see the Lord's anger revealed, it can produce all sorts of good things like fear and sobriety and, and trembling. But if we want to find the headwaters of repentance, we have to look somewhere else. Repentance flows not from God's anger, but it flows directly from the grace and love of God. It is the love of God that calls sinners to repent. It is the grace of God that that summons one and all to, to turn back from their sinful ways back to the God who is life. It is the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone that provides a way of escape for the sinner. And so we often get repentance wrong as we think about its origin, where it comes from. But we also get repentance wrong in in another way. We misunderstand repentance in terms of its work and its goal. And so as we think about repentance, there is a lot of work to repentance, There is godly sorrow over sin. That is an essential part of repentance. Perhaps even tears. There's also the confession of sin. That's a part of repentance. We name what we've done wrong to the Lord and to those we have wronged, our brothers and sisters. And then there is godly zeal. We make restitution in our repentance. We we put right what is wrong. We fix what is broken. We heal what is wounded to the best of our abilities. But things, these things often get muddled when we connect the work of repentance to its goal. We go wrong when we think our repentance earns the approval and wins the acceptance of God. We go wrong when we think our works in repentance, these things that we do in repentance, remove from us the anger of the Lord. And this misunderstanding creates all sorts of confusion in the soul one starts to ask questions like these. Have I sorrowed long enough over my sin? Have I shed enough tears over this particular failure in my life? Have I been sufficiently gloomy for what, have I, what I've done? Have I done enough? Have I cried enough? Have I mourned enough to move past this sin? but this gets repentance wrong. Salvation is not earned through repentance. Tears, sorrow, gloominess, these things do not create peace with our God. Rather, repentance, all of it is a gift from God, or to tighten that up even more, repentance is part of the salvation that our God gives to us in Jesus. Or to really shorten that up, repentance does not earn grace. Repentance is the grace of God revealed to us in Jesus. The apostle Peter taught this very clearly in his preaching. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Peter makes this statement about Jesus. He says, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior. So Peter's telling us who Jesus is. He is leader and savior, and God has exalted him to this glorious position. And what does Jesus do as leader and savior? Well, Peter says, to give repentance to Israel And forgiveness of sins. What does Jesus do as Savior? He gives the gift of repentance and forgiveness to his people. Now, if we misunderstand repentance, we have to understand that this is particularly problematic for the Christian life. And it's problematic because repentance is foundational to the Christian life. Repentance is one of the first actions that God calls us to in the Christian life, and in fact, repentance is one of those works that we we keep at throughout the entirety of our Christian life, and so if we go wrong with repentance, our lives in Jesus are malformed. They look wonky and strange, and so then it is of utmost importance that we understand repentance rightly, and here Joshua chapter 8 proves to be a great help for us in understanding repentance. And so in Joshua chapter eight we see battle plans given, we see this brilliant ambush that the Lord thinks up for his people. We see war and destruction and there's some pretty brutal war scenes in chapter eight but in the midst of all of this, we see God and we see God dealing graciously and kindly with his people. And if we pay attention to to the Lord in Joshua chapter 8, and if we take what we see of the Lord in Joshua chapter 8 to heart, we will find our understanding of repentance clarified and built up. And so that's our goal. And to do this, we're going to pay close attention to verse 1 and verse 2. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on these two verses. And as we look at these two verses, we're going to draw in the rest of chapter 8 into them. And as we look at these first two verses, we will see that God, our gracious God, gives three gifts to his humbled people. He gives the gift of consolation. He gives the gift of direction. And he gives the gift of his promise, and we'll take these one at a time. And so let's look at the first gift that our God gives, the gift of consolation. And so our chapter begins, verse 1, with these words, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Now we've been studying the book of Joshua, and because we've been studying the book of Joshua, these words are nothing new to us. We've already heard these words from the Lord to Joshua. Joshua. In fact, we've heard these words from the Lord to Joshua on repeat. We can just go back to chapter 1. The story started with these words. The Lord came to Joshua and he said to him, chapter 1, verse 6, be strong and courageous. And then we kept reading our Bibles and we moved to the next verse, chapter 1, verse 7, and the Lord repeats himself. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Courageous. And then we keep reading our Bibles, and then for good measure, the Lord says the same thing a third time, chapter one, verse nine. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So here we are in chapter eight, verse one, and we've heard this before multiple times. And the temptation for us as readers, as we read chapter eight, verse one, is to skip over these words. As readers, we say, well, I've heard this before. What's next? As readers, we say, well, I know what these words mean. I've studied them already. I want to know what happens in the rest of the story. But if we move past these words too quickly, we will miss out on some sweetness in these words. So remember back with me to last week. Remember the state of Israel in chapter seven. And so they go to battle with Ai and they're routed, In that battle, and as a result, the the people of Israel are confused, they're bewildered, they're they're afraid. We get chapter 7, verse 5. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. But we can't stop there. We have to remember Israel, but we also have to remember Israel's leader, Joshua. Do you remember Joshua? In chapter 7, we get this scene, Joshua's torn his clothes, he is mourning, his heart is troubled, and not just his heart, but his head. And from all of that trouble, he speaks to the Lord. He said, chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. So in chapter 7, we see all of this fear, all of this confusion, all of this trouble. And we have to remember, why did all of this happen? Well, it was sin. We saw it in chapter 7, verse 1. Achan sinned against the Lord, and so did Israel. Israel broke faith with God. Now come back with me to chapter 8, verse 1. Look at these words. Listen to them. The Lord comes to Joshua after all of this, and he says to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Can you taste the sweetness of these words from the Lord to Joshua? Do you taste it? Because Israel's sin has been put away, because Achan has been destroyed, because the Lord's anger has been satisfied in his destruction, the Lord comes to Joshua and he gives him peace and consolation and in Joshua this peace and consolation goes to all of the people of God. Do you taste the sweetness The Lord, after the sin, after the trouble, after all of the fear, comes to Joshua and he speaks peace to him. Do you hear it in these words of the Lord? The Lord is saying to Joshua in these words: Joshua, I am for you. Joshua, I am with you. Joshua, I am still your God, and I will still give you help. I will still give you aid. Do not be confused. Do not be dismayed. Do not be troubled. I am your God, and we are at peace. And as we think about these words that the Lord gives to Joshua and in Joshua to all of Israel, do they not remind us of the same words that we have heard in the gospel of Jesus? Think about it like this, because our sin has been dealt with fully and finally in Jesus, in his substitutionary death for us. Our God comes to us with the same sort of sweet words. After putting away all of our sin, our God doesn't keep us in the dark. He doesn't shove us away. He doesn't keep us at a safe distance. No, what does our God do? He, He draws near to us in the gospel of Jesus. And as he draws near to us, he speaks words of peace he says to us as he spoke to joshua in chapter 8 verse 1 do not fear do not be dismayed all is well in fact this is what we hear from the the mouth of our lord jesus after his death after his resurrection jesus meets with his disciples in the gospel of john john chapter 20 verse 5 and jesus draws near to his followers And after all of his gospel work, what does he say to them? He says, peace be with you, peace be with you. We need to hear this. This is how our God deals with his humbled people. He deepens, he ripens our repentance with his consolations of peace and his promises of help. Just think about it, our God doesn't sit smugly in the heavens. He doesn't furrow his brow at us. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together, to pull our lives together before he draws near to us. No, what we see is he draws us along on this path of repentance. He moves us forward on the path of obedience. He does this by his words of love and his promises of help how the Lord is dealing with Israel in Joshua chapter 8 verse 1. And this is how the Lord deals with us in the gospel. He moves us along and he ripens our repentance through words of peace and love and grace. And when we taste his words of love and peace and grace, it ripens our repentance for when we taste the consolation of the Lord, we start saying things in our minds like this. Oh Lord, how could have I ever sinned against you? You are so kind and gentle with me. You've been so good to me. How can I ever turn aside from you again? And so we see in verse one, the Lord gives a gift, the gift of consolation. And that's the first gift that the Lord gives. And the first gift is accompanied with a second gift. And the second gift is the gift of direction. So remember back with me to Joshua chapter 7. And if you remember back to Joshua chapter 7, there's this flurry of activity in the text. Joshua sends spies to scout out Ai. They go up to Ai. They scout it out. They bring a report back to Joshua. They say to Joshua, the city is small and weak. Don't bring all the people up there to trouble them. Just send up a few contingents of soldiers. They will take the city. It will all be well. And so Joshua listens to them. He sends up a small contingent of soldiers. They try to battle against the city, but they're routed. They run away. There's a flurry of activity in chapter 7, but there's this eerie silence in the midst of all of this activity. As all of this is going on, we do not hear one sentence. We do not hear one word from the Lord in the midst of all of this. But here's the good news. This changes in chapter 8. In chapter 8, the Lord enters back into the story and he takes center stage. And this is where the Lord should be as Israel is going into battle to take the land. Just listen to verses 1 and 2. Listen to the Lord. The Lord says, take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So the Lord is giving direction to Joshua and to Israel. And here in these directions that the Lord gives, we see the Lord's wisdom What is Israel gonna do? They're going to fake defeat before Ai. And as they fake defeat and as they run from the city of Ai in retreat, they're gonna draw out Ai's king and and they're fighting forces away from the city. And this is gonna leave the city of Ai defenseless. And then there's those men hidden in ambush to the west of the city and once once the, the army flees, And the king of Ai chases after them and the city is defenseless. These men will rise up from their ambush, enter into the city, take it and burn it. And then they will turn from the city and they will move into the field of battle and then Joshua and his men, they will turn and in a pincer-like movement, they will sandwich the forces of Ai and swallow them up on the field of battle. They will have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. We see the Lord's wisdom no siege will be necessary to take this city. No great loss of life will occur for Israel in this battle. If Israel follows the Lord's directions, they will have the city. But that's not the end of the Lord's directions, as we follow the story. And so the Lord gives battle plan, gives a battle plan to Israel, but He does not just give a battle plan. He takes an active part in this battle. He controls the war against Ai. The Lord is the master of the field. He is the great general orchestrating this event. And so right at the right time, the Lord enters back into the story in verse 18 and he speaks to Joshua. He gives the commands as the true general. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hands. And so Joshua, if you remember back to Exodus 17, Moses lifts up his staff, and Israel fights and wins. Joshua does the same thing. He stretches out his javelin, and he holds out his javelin, and as he holds it out, Israel wins the battle, and Joshua does not lower it until all has been accomplished. So what do we see here in this? What are we to make sense of the Lord's directions? Well, first of all, we see Israel's neediness for the word of God. They need the Lord's wisdom, they need his insight, they need his directions, and they only succeed at AI because the Lord is speaking to them again. The Lord speaks and they win. As we think about it, doesn't this cause your heart to hunger for the word of God, for the directions of God, for the wisdom of God? For without His word, without His direction, we are lost and aimless and hopeless. But there's more here for us. As we listen to the Lord speak His directions to the people of God, this humbled people, we see this. The Lord isn't done with Israel yet. The Lord hasn't put Israel on a shelf because of their sin in chapter seven. We see that the Lord has this purpose for Israel, and this purpose will still go forward. And as we think about it, isn't this how God has dealt with us in the gospel of Jesus? We have sinned against our God, but he has put away our sin. And because he's put away our sin, he hasn't put us on the shelf. He hasn't discarded of us. He still has a purpose for us. Aren't we reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? Paul says to us, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We see something glorious here in chapter 8. The Lord has this purpose for Israel, and the purpose is not yet done. And here we find help for our own souls. And I urge you this morning, do not fall into the temptation of listlessness and inactivity. When we sin and our sin is put away in the gospel, there's always this lingering temptation of false guilt. It lurks in the shadows of our soul and it comes to our soul and it says something like this. Because of your sin, God has nothing more for you in this life. It will try to reason with you. It will say, As such a sinner like you can't be a part of God's purposes in this world. This God is holy and righteous and this work is important. But you've let the Lord down. You've you failed in this area and in this area. You, you can't take part in this work. False guilt will come and it whispers, reminds you of all the wrong things that you've done, one after another after another. And it says, you better just pull back. You better just seclude yourself from the work and from the people of God and let somebody else do the work, somebody more pure, somebody more Righteous. But here we have to understand that this is not the way of true repentance. What happens when we truly repent? God creates within his people a zeal for God. True repentance will mourn over sin and hate sin, yes, but it will go further. It will yearn and long for the work and the ways of God to be accomplished in this world. So forgiven believer, know this. We see it in this text, God has a a purpose for you. Better said, he has already prepared for you good works that you might walk in them. And so when false guilt comes, you need to take courage and you need to, to put it away. And you do that by remembering the gospel of Jesus. You speak the gospel of Jesus to it. In Jesus, my sins are forgiven. In Jesus, my story is not yet over. In Jesus, I know that God has prepared good works for me that I might walk in them. And Then what do we do in repentance? We get after the work that God has called us to. We don't pull back because God hasn't pulled back from us. So we see God gives, first of all, the gift of consolation and then he gives the gift of direction, and then third, he gives the gift of his promise. So back to verse one. The Lord confirms his promise to Joshua and to Israel. He says, See, look, behold, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. It's amazing. We heard the promise of God on repeat in chapter one of Joshua, and here again, the Lord is repeating his promise to his people. And this promise is prominent in the story, and and so Joshua receives the direction of the Lord, he gets the battle plan, the the ambush, and then he turns and he, he goes to his army and he relates all that the Lord has for them to do. And in the middle of all of these directions, Joshua turns to them And he rouses them to faith in God by repeating to them the promise of God. Look at verse seven. Joshua says, then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. What do we see here? What what drives Israel forward in the work of the conquest? What keeps this humbled people moving forward one step after another? Well, it's not threats, it's not primarily warnings, though the Lord does use warnings and we are wise to heed his warnings. The principal fulcrum here is the promise of God. God motivates and activates and advances his people through the word of his promise. So the Lord, in his grace, he comes to Joshua, and he repeats the promise to him. He says to Joshua, this city is yours. This king, he is yours. This whole land, it's yours. Here's the promise. I'm going to give it to you, all of it. And Joshua receives it, and what does he do? He turns to all of his men, and he moves them forward with the same words. The Lord, (laughs) he's working for you, and he's going to give this whole city to you. And again, isn't this how our God deals with us in the gospel? Our God motivates us and activates us and moves us forward with the word of his promise. And what we see here in chapter 8 verse 1 is is a bit dark, it's a bit cloudy. But what we see in the new covenant is clear, crystal clear. Clear. We get a better word in the New Covenant. We get a better promise. Our God comes to us and he motivates us and activates us and moves us forward. He comes to us and he says, believer, your sins are forgiven. All of them. Not one sin will be remembered against you. The Lord says, believer, your future is secure. Christ is risen and he will raise your body someday up from the grave. The Lord speaks to us, he says, it gets better, you will reign with Jesus forever. Think about that, you will reign with Jesus forever. The Lord comes to us and he says, you will judge angels with Jesus. You will have that role someday. And even more, the Lord says to us, you will have absolutely everything in Christ. Everything you could imagine in Jesus. And we have to understand that this is no idle word. We see in chapter eight, verse one, that the Lord draws near to Joshua and he gives his, his promise. And the promise comes true. Just look at the text. We read the story. The Lord promised to Joshua the city, its king, its army, and that's exactly what Joshua gets. Ai is raised to the ground and burned. Its rebellious king is, is hung and then stoned. The army is slaughtered on the field of battle. No one can withstand the Lord. The promise comes true. And we need to reckon that to our own hearts this morning. Brother, sister in Jesus, believe this. God's promise to you in Jesus is no idle word. Hear this, you will be raised one day up from the dead. And you will receive a glorious body You will really sit in judgment over angels with Jesus. You will really reign with Jesus for countless ages. You really will inherit all things in Jesus. We can be sure of that, that's how the promise works. And here's the thing, we have to put the promise to work in our repentance. If we actually wanna repent in a way that pleases God, we have to repent with the promise how do we do that? Well, we carry out our repentance with both of our hands firmly grasping the promises of God. How do we repent? We, we grasp hold of all of these gracious promises that, give, that God gives us and we don't let go of them. We keep holding on to them because those spur us forward. We repent with our, our heads crammed full of the promises of God. You wanna repent well? Start stuffing the promises of God into your head so that they get down into your heart. You want to repent? What do you need to do? You need to fix your eyes on your future in Jesus. That's how God motivates us and activates us and and moves us forward in the Christian life. And so in Joshua chapter eight, we see these three gifts that God gives. He comes to Joshua and he gives consolation He comes to Joshua and he gives directions and then finally he gives the promise. What do we see in Joshua chapter eight? We're seeing something of our God. He is this gracious and good God. He is merciful to his people and it is his delight to pour out these good gifts on his humbled people. And the good news is this, the same God we meet in Joshua chapter eight is our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the question we need to ask in light of chapter 8. How do we respond to this God of grace? We see these gifts revealed and we're we're reckoning that these gifts are available to us in Jesus as well and we ask well how do I put to use all of these gifts in my life? How do I move forward with these? And so we've spent almost the entirety of our time on the first two verses in in Joshua chapter 8. And here I want to to move our attention to the end of Joshua chapter 8. We're going to focus on the last six verses of this chapter. And so in the last six verses, we we see this great scene change. In the beginning part of the text, we get a, a battle. We get warfare. But in the last six verses, we find a holy assembly to the Lord. All of Israel is gathered. The men of Israel, the women, the children, even a good number of foreign-born people like Rahab and her family members are all there gathered. And in this scene, there's this unique arrangement. We have the congregation of Israel, and they're split in half. One half goes before Mount Ebal. The other half goes before Mount Gerizim. And then in the middle of the congregation... We have the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and by the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, we have this newly built altar for the Lord where Joshua offers up sacrifices to the Lord for sin and for fellowship with the Lord. And so we ask, well, what is going on here? This is a strange sort of thing to see. Well, as we look at the text, really, this whole scene is about the Word of God, Just take a look at these six verses. What does Joshua do in this scene? Well he he takes lime and plaster and then he writes the law of God on the stones of the altar. What is Joshua doing? He's literally plastering the word of God before Israel so that they might see the word of God with their eyes. But Joshua doesn't stop there. After this visual display of the word of God, Joshua goes after the ears of the people of God. So the congregation is split up in these two camps and Joshua pronounces covenant blessings on the congregation gathered before Mount Gerizim and then he turns to Mount Ebal and there he he pronounces the covenant curses if Israel breaks covenant with the Lord. He's pronouncing the word of God over them. But this isn't the end of the word of God in chapter eight. Look at verse 35. The text says this, and this is how the story ends. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. And so what does Joshua do? He, he takes the whole of the law of God, perhaps the whole book of Deuteronomy, and he stands there and he reads it all to the people of God as they're situated into these two camps. Now just use your imagination with me for a moment and just try to picture this in your mind. Here we have all of Israel gathered together. We've got these two mountains here. We've got Mount Gerizim, we've got Mount Ebal. Thousands of people spread out, thousands upon thousands. We have men and women and children. And then there is Joshua, and he is stationed in the middle of this great congregation by this altar and by the by the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And what Joshua does is this: he stands up in the midst of this assembly and he reads the word of God, and he keeps reading it, line after line after line. And we need to keep using our imaginations because it gets richer and deeper. This place where Israel is gathered. So we've got Gerizim, we've got Ebal. This place is called Shechem. So this place where Israel is gathered, where they're hearing the word of God, is the very place where the Lord first appeared to Abraham in the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 12. It's amazing. Even more, this is the very place where Jacob pitched his tent and built an altar to the Lord. This very place, and this place he called this, El Elohi Israel. He called this place God, the God of Israel, Genesis 33, verse 20. What do we see here? We see this holy and sacred place. Here is the place where the Lord covenanted with Abraham. Here is the place where Jacob worshiped the Lord and found comfort in his God, calling him God, the God of Israel. And here in Joshua chapter 8, all of the people of God are regathered and they reaffirm the covenant with the Lord. And so, what does this mean? How does this help us? Well, I think here we get a fitting conclusion. How should Israel respond to the gifts of God? How should Israel walk before this gracious and merciful God? Here's the answer they should keep covenant with God. They should keep the covenant. And how are they to keep the covenant? Well, first of all, we see this. They must believe the promise as Abraham and Jacob did. How do you keep covenant? They say yes and amen to the promises of God. God, I believe this is who you are and this is who you are for us. And second, from that faith, they must obey the word of God, doing what God commanded them through the mouth of Moses. They must obey and I think this scene answers our questions. How do we respond to this God of grace? How do we put these gifts of God to use? Well, brother, sister, and Jesus, hear this. You do it by keeping covenant with the Lord. That's the call this morning. What is your call? Keep covenant with the Lord. And how do you do that? Well, first of all, you do it by believing the promises of God. That's how you keep covenant. The Lord comes to us and he says all of these gracious and good words to us. Your sins are forgiven. You will be raised from the dead. You will reign with Christ. And what do we do to keep covenant? We say to the Lord, yes, amen. I believe it. I love it. We keep covenant in faith. But keeping covenant doesn't stop there. As we believe, we fix our eyes upon the word of God. And then we fill our ears with the word of God And then we go and obey the word of God with our hands and our feet. We perform the word of God. We conform our lives to the word of God because we trust and believe the word of God. So chapter eight ends with this call to faith and obedience. How do you respond to the gifts of God? You believe and you obey. So hear this call, receive this charge. This is what Joshua chapter eight has for you today. Trust in the Lord and obey his commandments. And brother, sister, and Jesus, hear this piece of good news. You can actually keep this call. You can keep covenant with the Lord. You can live in faith. You can live in obedience. And you can do this because our God has done something great for you. Just think about it. Our God has not written his law, his word on a bunch of stones in Shechem. He has done an amazing spiritual work in the new covenant. What has he done? He has taken his word, his law, and he has written it upon our hearts. He has in the new covenant performed a heart surgery on us. He has rewired our hearts that we might delight in him and his word and his ways. He has created this inclination in our souls where we love to do what God has told us to do. So brother, sister, and Jesus, you can keep this charge, you can live in faith, you can walk in obedience, and you can do this because our God is full of grace and mercy. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you for Joshua chapter eight. We need this good word. We need to learn about repentance and we need to have it clarified in our minds that we wouldn't be malformed or confused. And so we pray, would you clarify our minds and would you do that by showing us your grace again? We wanna taste your grace in Jesus, the consolation you give, the direction you give, the promise you give. And so would you satisfy us now with your grace? We pray this in, in Jesus' name, amen.